Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. And uh, we're going to have it on the screen, and we're going to read it in three, two, one. Here we go. Uh, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even dogs came and licked his sores. I mean, he's just in a terrible state, this, this poor guy. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, which by the way is a Greek word that's transliterated into hell in the New Testament, is one of basically three words that's translated into hell. It just says Hades here, but this is what we're talking about. In Hades or hell where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, uh, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross from over there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent, surely, right? He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Wow, what an illustration of when Jesus eventually comes and rises from the dead, right? We know that he was resurrected, and even then, there were people back then in those days and still today, even with the resurrection, still don't believe, uh, you know, in Jesus, but... We want today, we want to talk about this difficult passage of Scripture. Before we, we get into things, uh, let us pray here tonight. Jesus, I thank you today um, for your grace and your love that makes all of what we do possible. God, every good and perfect gift comes from you. And so, Jesus, we thank you tonight for your goodness, for your grace in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that we live in a, in a wonderful part of the world in which we can worship you freely, which we can express our praise and admiration unto you, Lord, freely in this place. God, we just give you thanks and praise for who you are and all you've done on our behalf. And God, I just pray that tonight, as we dive into your word, that you would illuminate it to our minds, to our hearts. And God, perhaps you would open our eyes for the very first time about who you are. And all you've done on our behalf. So God, we just give ourselves to you tonight. Ask that you would have your way in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I was reading a story this week about a defendant who was on trial for murder in Oklahoma. Uh, There was strong evidence that would indicate guilt, but there was no body. And so in the defense's closing statement, the lawyer, thinking that his client you know, might be convicted, uh, you know, even though there was no body, there was a lot of evidence. So uh, he resorted to a trick and he said, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I have a surprise for for all of you. Uh, The lawyer said as he looked at his watch, he said, within one minute, the person that is presumed dead in this case is going to walk into this courtroom. 
And so in anticipation, all the jurors, somewhat stunned, they, they, they looked and stared at the door, just kind of waiting to see what might happen. But nothing happened. And finally the lawyer said, actually, I just made all that up, he said. <laughs> but you all looked on in anticipation, didn't you? I therefore put it to you that there must be a reasonable doubt in this case as to whether anyone was actually killed and insist that you return a, ver- a verdict of not guilty. And the jury, clearly confused, they retired to deliberate and think of, you know. And a few minutes later, they returned and pronounced a verdict of guilty. But how, inquired the lawyer. Uh, You must have had some doubt. I saw all of you stare at the door. And the jury foreman said, oh yeah, we did look at the door, but your client never did. (laughs) Did you catch that? He never did. He never did. And tonight we're going to talk a little bit about God's justice and God's judgment, okay? God's justice and God's judgment. You know, every once in a while, I like reading some fiction, uh, especially if I'm going on a holiday or I'm traveling. And the type of books I like to read are some of those murder mystery books, you know, some of the just or John Grisham courtroom drama type books. Anyone read those kind of books? I love some, some of those kind of books. And sometimes I'm reading these books or maybe on a TV show you've watched this where you got, you got a case where, you know, all the evidence is piling up on this, this character, and he obviously did it. He obviously committed the crime. I mean, they got fingerprints, they got motivation, there was blood on the whatever, and just this piling evidence, and yet on some crazy technicality, the whole thing gets thrown out. And I know it's only fiction, but my blood boils and say, this is just not right. You know, I'm watching CSI, and I'm getting mad. You know, I'm getting angry at the TV, because it's just not right, you know. And there's a sense of injustice kind of bubbles up within me. Does anybody know what I'm, can anybody relate to this? You know, the sense of injustice, even in fiction. And the sad thing is sometimes this happens in real life. And that's the sad thing. You can have clear cases where the evidence is so real. It, it, it's, it's so overwhelming. And yet on a technicality, something could get thrown out of court. And I would say perhaps justice isn't really done in that instance. And as I was preparing for tonight's uh, message, you know, I was reading of a Supreme Court Justice Horace Gray in Massachusetts uh, many, many years ago. In, in one particular court case, you know, he had a man who was obviously guilty. I mean, all the evidence was overwhelming. And yet he escaped conviction on one of these technicalities. And I love the response of the Supreme Court Justice. He said, and I quote, he said, I know that you are guilty. He said this in the courtroom. He said, I know that you are guilty and you know it. And I wish to you to remember that one day you will stand before a better and wiser judge than me. And that there you will be dealt with according to justice and not according to the law. Wow, what a statement, eh? What a statement from this, from this judge. And really, I think deep down, you know, all of us want to see justice. We want to see, you know... <laughs> the, the, the evildoers come to justice. We want, we want to see a measure of justice, at least when it comes to other people <laughs> and, 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 and their issues and their wrongdoings. We don't want to see it if, if it's us. We want mercy, right? We want mercy when it comes to us, but we want to see justice in other cases. You know, sometimes we often ask the question, and perhaps you've asked this, you know, how could a loving God allow evil and suffering in our world? What a great question. That's a serious question. But a quick answer to this, how a loving God could allow evil and suffering, a quick answer. I mean, we're not going to have time to elaborate fully on this tonight. 
But a quick answer to this is, to, is that basically to allow human beings to truly love one another and to truly love God, there needs to be something called free will. You cannot truly love someone unless there's free will because you can't force someone to love you. Does that make sense? Love is a choice. When you truly love someone, you are making a choice to put that other person before you, to look out for their interests. You are making a conscious choice. It's not just a feeling. It's not just as this emotion. True love is a choice, and you cannot make choices without free will. And so God grants all of humanity free will. And when there's free will, the opportunity arises for evil to happen, isn't it? That, that opportunity, so God doesn't cause evil and suffering, but because he gives us free will, the opportunity then is there for people to choose to do wrong and choose to do evil things, okay? And we suffer because of that. So people struggle with this idea, right? How can a loving God allow evil and suffering? And I would say today that all the evil and injustice that has been done throughout history And still done to this day. You know what? The Bible says something very clear. God is going to deal with all of the injustices, all of the evil, all of the wrong things that has been done throughout history. And he's dealt with some of it, and he will deal with it in eternity. The Bible is clear on that. Every knee shall bow, the Bible says, and every tongue will confess. You know what? God is on his throne room, and he deals with all of these things. And, you know, it's interesting how often... You know, the same people who struggle with the concept of a loving God allowing evil and suffering into the world, it's ironic, kind of, that people who struggle with this also have a problem with the idea that God will ultimately deal out his justice in these matters, but it's in a place that we don't like to talk about. And that is the place of hell. Okay? Now, before I go any further here tonight, we're going to be diving into a topic that we don't really talk about a whole lot in church. Okay? It's not the most necessarily encouraging topic. It's, it's not the most uplifting thing per se. I hope we'll find some encouragement here tonight, and I believe we will. But it's a serious and heavy topic. The, the, the concept of hell, the idea, not just the idea, but the reality of it. Okay, Some people want to deny its existence, and I don't know how you can read the Bible and say it doesn't exist. It exists. Now, some thoughts around it and what it is and what it isn't, and, and, and all, well, we're going to talk about some of that tonight. But let's make something clear. It does exist according to the Bible, okay? It it really does. And we don't like talking about it because it is uncomfortable. I wish, you probably did too, that, you know, we don't wish that on anybody. We don't don't want it to be the case, but I don't get to pick and choose what the Bible talks about. It's in there, okay? And so before we get into some of that tonight, uh, I want to talk about a few things, first of all, that we can learn some lessons about this story uh, about Lazarus and the rich man in Luke chapter 16. A few key lessons, okay? And uh, hopefully you'll follow with me here tonight. Number one, how we treat people really matters. It really, really does. One of the main themes from this parable is how the rich man, in his pride and privilege, how he treated, or shall I say, mistreated Lazarus. The rich man, he had all the resources. He had all the wealth. He had everything that, and more, than you could ever need or want. And yet this man at his gate was begging, day in, day out, just hoping to get crumbs to fall down, to find 
food. And it's inferred in the text that this rich man really did nothing to help Lazarus at all. Lazarus was so down and out that even the stray dogs that were around came and licked his open sores. That's disgusting. But this is how down and out and destitute Lazarus was. And yet, it's inferred again in the text, the rich man did nothing to improve his condition or help him in any way. In fact, the rich man was so blind, I would say, to the needs of others. And you can imagine, if he's that blind to the person who's sitting right at his gate day in and day out, you've got to think he's blind to the, all the other needs that are around him as well. I mean, you can't get more obvious than this, right? What do you think the chances are that he's going to see the need that's just, you know, a little ways down there, you know, just in the, in, the, in the neighbor's household or the next block over? He's probably not seeing that need either if he can't see the need that's right in front of him. And the rich man, I would say, was so blind to the need of others that when they're in their eternal state, I don't know if you noticed this, he said to Abraham, he said, Send, can you please send Lazarus over to help soothe my wounds? Did you catch that? Even considering Lazarus to be his subordinate and subject to him, even in their eternal state. Can you imagine the gall, right? Boy. I mean, here he is. He's in hell. Lazarus in heaven. With, can you send him over? Yeah. Can you send that servant, peasant over here to help me? You know, I'm, I'm suffering here, right? I mean, how blind is he? Friends, how we treat people matters. It really does. I would say tonight that if you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, friends, there should be no room ever for racism, elitism, you know, however you want to define elite, you know, in your economic state that you look down upon others who may have a, a lower prestige of job and you think, you know, there's no room for that in your economic state, the color of your skin, how much money is in your bank account, whatever it is, what side of the train tracks you live on, I don't know, it doesn't really matter. There's no room to, to treat people like that. We are all created in the image of God and just, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. And just because you're a human being to me means that you should have, you know, I should treat you with respect and dignity just because you're a human being. If you're a Christian, that should be true of you. There's no room for these other things, okay? Uh, How we treat people really matters. We see in John 13, 35, especially within the church, he says, "By, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If you love one another. You know what? This man, this rich man in the text, he was really... A godly man, so to speak. He was a, he's supposed to be. He's a Jew. Okay? And we see this as he calls out to Father Abraham. And he was actually most likely a Pharisee. He should have known better and how to treat people. And we also see Romans 12, 16. This really speaks to this. He says, live in, uh, Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Don't ever get puffed up and thinking that you're something. Because we're all on a level playing field with God. We really are. And I'm speaking this to all of us here tonight. So this is, this is a very important lesson from the story. How we treat people matters. Also, to go alongside with this, God, if he's giving you a measure of wealth, if he's, and I believe here today that really if we're in Canada, and I think we are, all of us are here today, we're all in Canada, Because we live in Canada, compared to the rest of the world's standards, we are wealthy. 
All of us in this room, some of us more so than others, sure. That being said, what we do with what we have been given matters. How we use that wealth or that material blessing or whatever it is, and some of us have little, you know, but some of us have much, but what we do with what we have really matters before God and helping meet the needs of others because there's needs all around us. There's needs all around us. Um, And we can all help someone in need with either our wealth, our time, our resources, our skills, our abilities. What what are we doing with that which God has given us? Because he's given it to us so that we can help others. You guys understand that? He hasn't given it to us just so we can hoard up all these things and build our own little kingdoms. Come on now. He hasn't blessed us for that. He's blessed us so that we can actually help others. All right? It's important to know how we treat people matters. Secondly, it's an issue of self-deception. You know, the rich man thought that he was all right with God. You guys, you guys see that? He thought him and God was good, right? They're, they're like this. They're tight, right? No issues between him and God. He was a Jew, probably a Pharisee, calling out to Father Abraham if, as if he had some inherent right to be heard, you know. He, hey, I'm a good Jewish boy. And yet, we, you know, we know in Jewish culture that to be financially secure was often... Uh, or financially wealthy was often attributed to God's blessing, right? We've seen that in the scripture that, um, but yet you see how much that mattered to God on judgment day for this guy, right? We see what, what really mattered here. It wasn't his wealth that he accumulated. This guy surely missed the point. Although he thought that him and God were good, God looks past the exterior and looks right into his heart. And I would say this, you know, Again, on the, on the issue of wealth, wealth can be a great trap, friends. It can be a tremendous trap for you and for I, for myself, when it comes to our walk with God. The human tendency, uh, you know, is that the more wealthy we become, the less we rely upon God for the things in our life and even for our very own souls. We get self-dependent. We, you know, we get our eyes off God and thinking, you know, yeah, God is blessing me and I'm just doing all these things and, and look at God's blessing. And we take our eyes off of him. And it's a great trap. And again, in Canada, where there's so much material wealth, you know, I've noticed something. And, and maybe if you're from another culture, or another country, maybe you've experienced this. But sometimes I've watched people who, who've been so on fire for God. You know, they're coming from a country that's very poor. And, 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 they're so, and, and they don't have much, and so their faith, you know, they, they're just crying out to God, and they're praying, God's meeting all their needs, and it's just amazing how, how what God is doing in their lives as they pray and seek Him. And then they move to Canada, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, there's this, wow, there's more money, there's more opportunity, there's more jobs, and, and all of a sudden, in time, you see this person who was once so on fire in, in, their, in their walk with God, and in their prayer life, and in worship, and attending church, and then over time, you see this person, it's just, I've seen this with my own two eyes, they start to just drift away a little bit, and they're not quite as on fire as they want, once were, they start relying upon their job, and I'm not saying, don't work your job, absolutely, that's a blessing from God, but you see this trap sometimes, right? And it can sometimes get our focus off of God. It's interesting how Jesus says, and I know it's a bit of a play on words, but he says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to make it into heaven. 
Wow. What a statement, right? And yet, look how, all, look how rich most of us are in this country. Again, relatively speaking, in the world. So I want to challenge us today. Let us not rely upon our wealth. You know, material wealth really can be here today and gone tomorrow, can't it? Maybe some of you have experienced that. Man, poof, gone, you know. It, it can be. And so let's not be deceived to think that just because we've had a measure of financial success, that we're good with God. But rather, let's be thankful for the blessing of the wealth that we have, that God has blessed us with. Now let's, let's begin to ask God, God, what would you have me do with it? Right? Lord, how would you have me use this? Help me to be a good steward of that which you've given me to help meet others, you know, to, to help others in need and, and, and for my own family, of course, and how to, how to manage all of this properly. You know, in our story today, the rich man blindly thought that he deserved better. You know, he's calling out to Father Abraham. He kind of blindly thought he deserved better. And, and really, we are often self-deceived, I would say, on what we deserve in this life. The reality is we don't deserve anything but death because of our sin. You know, we read in, in uh, Romans 3.23... That all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. In Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death, right? That's, that, that, that's the result of our sin. And so when it comes to what we deserve in this life, really, we all deserve death and separation from God because that's what sin brings. On our own merits, friends, on our own merits. So I'm a good person, you know, well... Okay, cool, but guess what? We are all sinners. We've all sinned. We've all messed it up. We've all done wrong in the sight of God. doesn't matter who you are and how good you think you are. We've all fallen short of God's glorious standard, and the wages of sin is death. And which brings us to our, our, really our, our, our final point of the night, which is kind of the, we're going to be hanging out here for a little bit. And I told you that it was, a topic we're going to dive into that we don't talk about a lot in church, but um, I felt led to do this tonight. And um, a few weeks ago, and Carol was there, and um, Peggy was there, we, we were teaching a course, an apologetics course, and one of the topics was, how could a loving God send someone to hell? How could a loving God send a person to hell? Do you think that's a great question? That is a good question. Um, how many think that people struggle with that question? How, you know, I would say unbelievers, people who are seeking, even believers would struggle with that question. You know, How do we reconcile all of this? And so tonight, I want to dive into this a bit. And so for you know, Peggy and Carol who have taken this course with me, you're going to get a little bit of a... a, a uh, a repeat on some of this a little bit, but bear with me, you guys. I know you guys are gracious, so we'll, we'll go there anyways here tonight. But I felt led to talk about it because, again, we don't talk about it a lot in church, and I think that there is, again, even Christians who have question on this, right? There's a bit of confusion, and, and so I felt that we should really chat about it tonight. Now, if we rightly say that the gospel is good news, which that's what gospel means, literally, good news, the good news about Jesus Christ, that in order for there to be good news, 
that there needs to be some bad news. Okay, does that make sense? The bad news is that all of us, just as I said a minute ago, the, the, all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. And the wages of sin is death, according to Romans 6.23. That is separation from God. So we are all born, essentially, with a eternal default switch. And the default switch is set to sin and death and reality hell to pay, if I can say it that way. That's the default Okay, we don't like to talk about it, but that's true. Now let me explain. How many know that you don't have to teach a child to sin? They come upon upon that quite naturally, right? I mean, those of you with little kids, I have little kids. You know, I, I didn't have to teach them how to be bad, how to lie, how to do all. They just figure that out, right? That's that's the default. I mean, we're all we're we're all, we all have a sinful nature, even from a child as they grow. There's a sinful nature that's in in all of us. So that's the default switch, unfortunately. And receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, accepting His forgiveness and mercy in our lives, you know what it does? It flips the switch, right? It really does. It flips the switch from sin and, 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 you know, and, and death and hell to pay for that, and it flips it to, wow, holy living, living for God and eternity with Him, and that's what I have to look forward to. It's a cosmic flip of the switch, so to speak, okay? That's how I think anyways. Anyway, I'm a techie guy. I'm used to switches and, and stuff like this and electronics. But make no mistake, our default position is not a good one. And again, people don't like talking about this topic of hell, which we're going to uh, jump into. It's a little uncomfortable. John Morrison, who we had last year speaking at our church in his book, he says, the question of hell is not an appealing one even for people who affirm its existence. No one likes the idea of many people suffering judgment in the life to come. But the good news of the gospel, I said this, right? The good news of the gospel requires that there would be bad news. Salvation in Jesus Christ would not bring glory to God if there were actually nothing to be saved from. So it's important to be able to give an answer, even in the case of a subject that no one particularly uh, likes contemplating. So the question is, what is hell about? What is it? What is it really? What is it about? And I would say that it's about two things, okay? If you're taking notes, you can, you can write this down. The first thing is really about, you can, uh, is about judge, uh, judgment and justice. You can kind of lump them together, okay? Judgment and justice. And then secondly, about the absence of God's presence. Okay, judgment and justice on one side, and then the absence of God's presence on the other, which, by the way, is really, and I'll explain this, that is what really makes hell a terrible, terrible, terrible place, is the absence of God's presence. We don't think about it. We just think, oh, it's some kind of, you know, torture. We're going to talk about this. The, the, what really makes hell, hell, what makes it the te- most horrific, terrible place that none of us want to go to is the actual absence of God's presence. Okay. Now, before we get there, though, I want to talk about the issue of justice and judgment. Okay, because this is a big deal. Uh, you know, we in the Western world, we are big on being non-judgmental, right? We don't like to be judged. <laughs> don't judge me. How dare you judge me, right? Hey, to each their own. What's good for you is good for you. Don't judge me on how I live my life. It's my life. And, um, you know, we live in such an individualistic society that Absolutely anyone judging our lives in any way is deemed offensive. That's kind of where things are at. 
And, you know, I would say that this is somewhat of a new phenomenon in history, somewhat. You know, in most societies in human history, they've been far more community-oriented, in which the pressure to conform to societal norms strongly guided men and women. And in this type of society, judgment is the norm. If you step outside of what's expected of you, and you most certainly will feel the judgment of society coming down on you. You guys know what I'm talking about? Can you, can you picture that? But I think we've gone so far that, you know, in the la- basically since the Enlightenment area up until present time, this whole uh, idea of the individualistic society, you know, especially in the Western world, to the point now we've almost come full circle, right? That now the societal norm is anything but God, anything but, you know, if you don't, if you don't go, hello, if you don't go along with the, the current cultural narrative, and saying that anything and everything goes, but you're saying, no, I have the truth of the gospel. No, you know. And so now there's a pressure for the church to conform to society. You see, it's almost kind of ironically come full circle. But, but, here, but here's the thing. The reality is that those who get bent out of shape about others judging them are often unknowingly doing the very thing they forbid, judging the other person as narrow-minded or backwards thinking or whatever. So, we're all making judgments. I don't know if you guys know that. We are all making judgments all the time. We do. Um, Well, Pastor Darren, doesn't the Bible say, don't judge? Yeah, it says don't judge, but the context is, you know, judge not lest you be judged, or basically means be careful on how you judge. Because with the measure that you use your judgment, it's going to be heaped back on yourself. Now, what it's talking, you know, and, and by the way, there's no room for us to judge the actual soul of a person. Now, we can judge a, a tree by its fruit. Yes, we can judge, we can see by a person's life, well, you know, they're, they're, it doesn't look like they're walking with God. Yeah, they did an evil thing there. I can judge, that's a bad thing. I can make a judgment about that thing they did. But when it comes to their actual soul, they're standing before God. I'm thankful tonight that neither you or I are the ultimate judge. We are not. We need to be careful on our judgments. Yes, we do. Because guess what? With the measure of judgment that we use on others, we need to be careful. That, that could very well be used on ourselves. So, so when people say don't judge, it's, it's, not just, it's not quite that simple. But we need to be careful. And we need to be merciful. God is a merciful, compassionate, loving God. I want him to judge me in that way. <laughs> right? So when I judge others, I want to be thinking I want, to, I want to look at other people with, you know, the eyes of, of looking at the best in them. Seeing, the mo- seeing what they could become, maybe not who they are. You know, seeing the potential that lies within them, not where they are. Because I, I, want, to, I want God to look at me in the most merciful, compassionate way. I want him to see the best in me. I want him to encourage me to go forward, right? Does that make sense? So we're making judgments all the time, but we need to be careful. You know, people get so hung up on this idea of, of, of judgmentalism. You know, Christianity is, is all, they're judging people. And John Morrison, in his book, he has a little fictitious story. I don't have it on the screen, but I want to read it really quickly. He says, picture for yourself the most violent, disgusting, perverted, tyrannical ruler from any time in history. You know, he abuses his slaves with inhumane working conditions. He forces them to work long hours and offers no days off. He tortures anyone who goes against him. And for his whole career, he has made extra money embezzling funds from his people. 
And as a result, these people live and die in poverty and squalor. Now picture this. After decades of this sort of oppression, brutality, and abuse, that this guy is now dying in a bed right in front of you. Desperate for breath, yet still hanging on to the little life he has. He motions for you to come close. And the dying old crook wants to tell you something, and he recalls with a sly snicker all the women he slept with and quickly cast aside afterwards. He tells you how he got rich at the expense of the workers and of the poor. He tells you with pride how he tortured his enemies, often killing them in front of their children to show his power and ensure their future submission. And going on like this, his tone is boastful, proud, and defiant of any power in heaven or on earth. And with his last bit of energy, he laughs. And I got away with it all. He goes on to say, the Christian's view of a God who holds everyone accountable seems very appealing at this point. (laughs) See, we all want to judge that guy, right? No one would have any problem with God judging that guy. No one has a problem with God judging the super evildoers of the world. Yeah, God will judge Hitler. He'll judge that guy we just read about. He'll judge, you know, whomever the, you know, you name them, the mass murderers, whatever. But is that the only person whom God judges? No, according to the scripture, he judges everyone. Everyone needs to give an account of their lives before God. doesn't matter who you are. I would say today, so we're talking about judgment, but again, hell is also about justice, right? Rendering justice. We know that God is a holy God. And that we've all been infiltrated with this thing called sin. And sin separates us from God. It's breaking God's law, his moral law, what he reads, uh, lays out in the scripture. And sin, by the way, is evil in nature. It's going against the person of God. It is addictive in nature. Sin is. And if sin, if not, you know, if not stopped or nipped in the butt right away, it, and it's full-blown force, no matter what the sin is, it is addict- addictive in nature and causes all kinds of potential problems in our life. And when it comes to justice, you know what? We cannot have a loving God. Some of these issues are about, does God love people, right? We cannot have a loving God without justice. If God cannot render justice in the afterlife, either on this planet or in the afterlife, if God doesn't have the ability to do that, would he truly be a loving God? I would say no, because you cannot have a loving God without there being a God of justice. You cannot have a loving society without there being justice. So let me just give you an example. If a repeat violent criminal is constantly getting slapped on the wrist and letting go into society only to repeat more violent crimes, terrible crime, violent stuff. If he is constantly let back into society, is the judicial system or the judge doing the loving thing? I would suggest not. I would argue that he is not doing the loving thing, but in fact, he's putting people in greater danger by doing this constantly over and over. So what about all the horrible situations that go on? You know, we can see them in the world today. Where's the the justice for those people? You know, these people have been, wow, you know, the the, the governments, their oppression on them, and people have been, you know, all over the world we can see, you know, examples of injustice, and certainly throughout history and still in the world today. Friends, I want to tell you something, that God will deal with every injustice on this planet. He will, either in this life or in the life to come. You see, God has something that we don't. And it's called an eternal perspective. 
You know, we are so limited in our time on earth, whether it be 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, I don't know how long we all have. But even 100 years, a life of, Ed, uh, you're, 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 you're not 100 yet, but <laughs> you're, close, you're, getting, you're getting closer than most of us here. But you know what? No matter how long we have on the earth, that is just, I mean, a speck compared to eternity. And so God has this eternal perspective. And somewhere down the line in eternity, he will render justice to all uh, the evils and all of the issues of sin that our world has ever known. We read in Isaiah chapter 2, 12 to 18, he says, The Lord Almighty has a day in store. Okay, write it down. This is, you know, you can go to the bank on this. He has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. For all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, all of the towering mountains, and all of the high hills, for every lofty tower and every fortified wall, every trading ship and every stately vessel. The arrogance of men will be brought low, and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols will totally disappear. Wow. He will render justice, friends. Now, you know, some would say, well, Pastor Darren, I'm not, you know, okay, we talk about the evildoer, we read an example. I'm not, I'm not a bad person, right? I'm not, I'm not as bad as that person, you know. I'm a good person. Well, you know what? The Bible actually doesn't teach that good people avoid hell. It teaches that those who don't put their hope and trust in Jesus, by default, choose hell. So God doesn't send anybody there. They, people send themselves. Now we read, and that might be shocking to you, John 3.16, we know this, right? This is familiar to us, but sometimes we forget 17 and 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Praise God. This is the good news. That's the gospel, right? God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. So he's not here to condemn you and I. He's not here to, you know, throw us under the bus. He's come to save us, right? He did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's the good news. It goes on to say, whoever believes in him is not, or yeah, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. You see the default switch. It's coming out loud and clear there. So we talked about, again, we're, we're kind of dealing with the doctrine of hell. Now, it's about justice and judgment. God rendering his judgment and then bringing justice appropriately that only God can do. Again, he will judge all of us, right? And the second thing, which is really the main point of, of, what, of what makes hell so terrible, and I mentioned this earlier, is that it is an absence of God's presence. An absence of God's presence. You know, there's conflicting viewpoints within scholars and theologians over the dec- decades, centuries, really, about the doctrine of hell and, and what, you know, how do you know? We can't, it's like the end times, okay? When people read through Revelation and read through some of the end time prophecies in the Bible, people have this idea and they talk about this, it's going to happen this way. No, some of the people think, no, it's going to happen this way. And I can see biblical argument for this way and I can see biblical argument for that way and I have my thoughts, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I don't know the future, really. And we're trying our best to interpret the Bible the best we can with the, the tools that we have and our understanding that we have. But we don't really know for sure 100%. You know, we get this idea. I remember when uh, 
I was in Bible school. I had this one professor, this was years ago now, and he was talking about some of the different doctrines of the end times, you know, when, um, you know, you got the, 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 the pre-tribulation uh, rapture. You guys know, anyone here, you, I see you're grinning. You, some, some people know what I'm talking about. You know, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, and what basically that Jesus is going to come back before the great tribulation happens. You know, follow me? Or some people think that Jesus is going to come back in the middle. So those are the mid-trib people, the middle of the tribulation. Some people think that God, Jesus is going to come back at the end of the tribulation. And he's, the professor's like, you know what? You got mid-trib, pre-trib, post-trib. You want to know where I'm at? He said, I'm a pan-trib. I'm like, what? It's all going to pan out in the end anyway, so I'm not going to get too worried about it, right? I'm like, and it, oh, that's a great perspective. You know, we can, we can have our idea, but we don't really know. Now, in saying all that, when it comes to hell, it's kind of like that. Now, there's a lot of imagery in the Bible regarding hell. We see utter dark, you know, Jesus talks about this. Utter darkness, you know, unquenchable fire, weeping, the gnashing of teeth, a fiery lake, burning sulfur, a place where the worm doesn't die. You know, like what? All, the, all these imagery and, and, and where scholars and theologians have debated, amongst other things, there are some other things I won't even get in tonight, is, is that literal or is that figuratively speaking? Is this a metaphor or is this literal? They, you know, scholars have debated this for a long time. I would say this that no matter if it's literal or figurative, um, it doesn't really matter in one sense. Because if it's figurative, here's the point. Hell is so terrible that it's going to feel, it may not be exactly like, okay, for instance, you can make the argument, if it's utter darkness, how could you have a fire? Fire brings light. If it's utter darkness, wouldn't the fire kind of illuminate the darkness? How could, you know, that doesn't really, you know, you can make statements like this, right? But if it isn't literal, it's going to feel like an unquenchable fire. You are going to be in so much suffering and agony, it's going to feel as if you are on fire, right? Ooh, that's terrible. It is terrible. It's going to feel so terrible. It's going to be so terrible for the person in there that you're going to experience the, you know, all of these things. And uh, again, whether you fall in the literal camp or the metaphorical camp, I don't think it really matters. What Because ma- I think there's argument for both. And you're, you'll see from me in a moment, I think, where, where I stand on it. And don't, don't hang me, okay, if you don't agree with me. That's okay. There's room for disagreement on this point. But I think what we can agree on is that it's a terrible place. And it is an absence of God's presence. Okay? And that is ultimately what makes it a terrible place. And none of us want to be there. Okay? And it should all break our hearts that there are people who end up in that state. Okay. Now, Timothy Keller commenting on this, he says this. Again, you'll see what some of these thoughts are, okay? He says, a common image of hell in the Bible is that of fire. So he's, he's taken the metaphorical state on this. And I think this actually helps us understand, by the way, the question of how could a loving God send someone to hell? He said, a common language of hell in the Bible is that of fire. Fire disintegrates. Even in this life, we can kind of see the kind of soul dis, uh, dis, disintegration that self-centeredness creates. That's what sin is, oftentimes, self-centeredness. We know how selfishness and self-absorption leads to piercing bitterness, nauseating envy, paralyzing anxiety, paranoid thoughts, and mental denials and distortions that accompany them. Now ask the question... 
What if when we die, we don't end? But spiritually, our life extends into eternity. Hell then, he's arguing, is the trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on forever. And you'll see how this plays out in a minute. You'll see his argument, okay? Because I know um, this might be a little different from what you've heard. Now, Timothy Keller in his book, he's also commenting on this passage that we read in Luke with the rich man and Lazarus. And he goes on to say, what is astonishing is that their status, though their statuses have now been reversed, the rich man and Lazarus, uh, the rich man seems to be blind to what has happened. He still expects Lazarus to be his servant and treats him uh, as his water boy. You notice this? He does not ask to get out of hell. Did you notice that? He, did, he didn't say, can I have another chance? Can Just please be merciful. Give me another shot. He never asked, let me out of here. He didn't ask that. And yet he strongly implies that God never gave him enough information about the afterlife. So commentators have noticed that the astonishing amount of denial, blame, shifting, and spiritual blindness in the soul in hell. Uh, they have also noticed that the rich man, unlike Lazarus, is never given a personal name. Did you notice that? He's just the rich man. He is only called rich man, strongly hinting that since he had built his identity on his wealth rather than God, once he lost his wealth, he lost any sense of self. In short, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. He goes on to say, We see this process writ small in addictions to drugs, alcohol, gambling, pornography. Just stop here for a second. Remember I said earlier that sin in its nature is actually addictive? How many think that greed is a, lying is addictive? Greed is addictive. You just name your name the sin. If if played out in your life, it's actually addictive. You just you just keep doing it and you lose control. You can't, you know what I mean? One lie leads to another, whatever. He's just picking on these these few vices here, but he says, we see all these sins. First, there's a, a talking about the addiction, there is a, a disintegration because as time goes on, you need more and more of the addictive substance to get an equal kick, which leads to less and less satisfaction. Second, there's isolation. If anyone has ever dealt with addiction in your life or watched it in someone else's life, this, this is what sin leads to addiction, which leads to isolation. And as increasingly you blame others and circumstances in order to justify your behavior. No one understands, quote, right? Everyone is against me, is muttered in greater and greater self-pity and self-absorption. He goes on to say, when we build our lives on anything but God, that thing, hey, maybe it's a good thing in and of itself, becomes an enslaving addiction, something we have to have to be happy. Personal disintegration happens on a broader scale. and eternity, this disintegration goes on forever. So he says there's an increasing isolation. Think about this, right? In light of eternity, if we're eternal beings and we're dealing with sin, which leads to addiction, which leads to isolation and blame shifting and all these, these, these things that are going on in our inside, if you increase that and stretch that out into eternity, it's just ever increasing this isolation, denial, delusion, self-absorption. When you lose all humility, you are out of touch with reality. He says no one ever asks to leave hell. The very idea of heaven seems to them a sham. Interesting thought. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, I don't know if you've ever, anyone's ever read that, any C.S. Lewis books, Brilliant Mind. And he wrote this book largely to address the idea of universalism, which means that everybody ends up in heaven, right? No matter what you believe, no matter how you live your life, everybody ends up in heaven. 
So he wrote this book um, to kind of take on that thought process. And the book is really an allegory, okay? And in the book, it takes the, the book takes the form of the of this bus ride that carries people from hell into heaven. So people who've been, you know, damned to hell, if you can say that, they're in hell. And this bus ride takes them to heaven where the narrator learns that they are offered a chance to stay there in heaven, but ultimately they reject it because they prefer to remain in hell. Interesting thought. Just like, you know, we see the rich man. He never asked to get out of there. And C.S. Lewis in his book, uh, commenting on this, he says this. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no longer, or sorry, then there will be no uh, you left to criticize the mood or to even enjoy it. But just like the grumble itself, going on forever, like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell, but in each of us there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. I think, guys, you know what? That people, again, a key factor of hell is the absence of God's presence. I think people on planet earth right today are experiencing a little measure of hell on earth because they have walled themselves off from the presence of God. There's, there is a, a, a common sense of God's presence in the world. Yes, because every good thing that we have really is from God, you know, above. But people sometimes have hardened their hearts and walled themselves off so much from God's presence, from sin and from other things, that people can experience, to an extent, a little bit of hell on earth. Hey, we can experience a little bit of heaven on earth in God's, that's God's presence, right? Hey, you come to church, you're in God's presence on a, a heightened level as we're worshiping with the saints. That's a little taste of heaven, I believe, you know, when we, when we, when we meet together in God's presence. Tim Keller, again, he's responding. We're going to be ending here in just a minute. He's responding to C.S. Lewis in, in, in his thought process here. He says, and again, just to backtrack, he's taken this standpoint, by the way, that some of the some of the imagery of hell in the Bible is is um, metaphorical in the sense that it's not literal, but it's describing what it feels like to the person who is in complete torment and suffering. It feels as if it's burning. It smells like burning sulfur. It feels like fiery flames. It's it's complete and utter darkness, like the isolation. Just all of these things. He's taken that stance. Okay, whether or not you agree with him. Um, but you see where he's going with this, okay? And he goes on to say, he says, the people in hell are miserable, but Lewis shows us why. C.S. Lewis shows us why. We see raging like unchecked flames, their pride, their paranoia, their self-pity, their certainty that everyone else is wrong and that everyone else is an idiot, right? All their humility is gone and thus is their sanity. They are utterly finally locked in a prison of their own self-centeredness and their pride progressively expands into a bigger and bigger mushroom cloud. They continue to go to pieces forever, blaming everyone but themselves. Hell is that, writ large. Now this is kind of the key point here, okay? He says, this is why it's a travesty. So how can a loving God send cast people to hell. This is why it's a travesty to picture God casting people into a pit, having them cry, I'm sorry, let me out. You know, the people on the bus from hell in Lewis's parable would rather have their quote-unquote freedom as they define it than salvation. Their delusion is that if they glorify God, they would somehow lose power and freedom. But in a supreme and tragic irony, their choice has ruined their potential 
their own potential for greatness. Hell is, as Lewis says, the greatest monument to human freedom. Wow. As Romans 124 says, God gave them up to their desires. All God does in the end with people is give them what they want most, including freedom from himself. Wow. I know this is a heavy topic tonight. It's a heavy topic. And I'll say, I, 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 you know, there's some more stuff in the notes. We'll, we'll wind it down here now as time has run out. So reality is, got check time. We all have a cosmic, if you will, default switch, right? It's sin, and the wages of sin is death. But the, the scripture verse goes on to say, but the gift of God is salvation through Jesus Christ, amen? That is the gift. And today we all have an opportunity to receive that gift of Jesus. We all do. So whether or not you agree with this theological standpoint on, on what hell is, you know, I, I, I tend to, from my understanding, what I study and read in scriptures, I, I'm on the same page as C.S. Lewis and Keller here. If you're not, that's okay. I think we'd all agree, though, it's not a place we want to be. It's not a place we want to go. It's not a place we want to see anybody go to. Right? The amount of suffering... To be out, to be cast out for eternity of the presence of God. It's not a place we want to be. And tonight we have an opportunity to make a choice for Jesus. A choice to receive his truth, his salvation. And I encourage you tonight, no matter if you've been serving God for 30 years or maybe you've never made that choice. Maybe you've never made a choice for him. We can do that tonight. Right? We can say yes to Jesus tonight. Say yes to his presence. I want to live for you, Jesus. I want to invite you in my heart today. I want to live in your presence today and tomorrow and really through the rest of my life and into eternity. I want to be in God's presence. I don't want to be removed from it. And we all have an opportunity to invite him into our lives and make him Lord and Savior. So in conclusion tonight, we'll, we'll end off here tonight, okay? Why, why don't we just stand? Why don't we just stand on our feet and we'll get out of here in just a minute. A couple quick questions. And our lesson here tonight, you know, one of the, the main points was how we treat others matters. We see this in the story of Lazarus, right? And the rich man. How we treat others matters. Friends, I want to encourage you tonight, all of us, myself, you know what? Let us think about that. I don't know if God has shown you anything in your life regarding that issue. Maybe someone you need to treat better or or whatever. I don't know. But how we treat others matter. How we use the wealth and 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 the resources that God has blessed us with matters. How we help meet the needs of of people who are in, how we treat those who are in need matters. Um, I'll let God speak to you on that as he's spoken to me on these things. How we use our wealth and our material gain and our resources matter to him. And then lastly, again, we have an opportunity to say yes to Jesus, to his salvation to his lordship in our lives and to his presence.
And so uh, why don't we just, uh, every head bowed, eye closed here tonight. And uh, I want to pray, okay? I want to pray. And um, Jesus, I just pray for everyone here in this place tonight that we would truly say yes to you. God, help us all tonight to say yes to you. Lord, today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, Lord, and through all of eternity, God, I pray that we would be a people who say yes to you. Yes to your salvation, Lord. Help us to receive that, Lord. Help us to live that out. And God, I pray that you'd help us to treat others properly, treat others with dignity and respect and help uh, those who are in need, Lord. If you've blessed us, help us to be a blessing to others. And God, we've all been blessed to some degree, Lord. So God, I pray that we would be a people who help others, Lord, who are in need. And God, that we would truly use that which you've given us, Lord, for your honor and your glory. And God, I pray that we would be a people who just continually say yes to you. And God, we'd be a people of the presence of God. Lord, if hell is a removal or an absence of your presence, God, I pray that we would all as believers experience a measure of heaven on earth and that we'd be a people known for the presence of God. As Lord, as we, as we go in, uh, to our workplaces, in our homes, in our schools, or Wherever we find ourselves, Lord, your presence is with us, God. May people sense the presence of God. The very presence of God, Lord, is alive and active in us. And God, I pray that we would also be a church, Lord, where the presence of God is so real, is so tangible. God, we'd be known as a church full of the presence of God. A little taste of heaven on earth, Lord, because you are here with us in a real way. And God, I pray finally for if there's anyone here tonight who has never never asked you as Lord and Savior, they've never invited you to come into their hearts as Lord and Savior. God, I pray that you'd speak to them tonight. Help them to make that choice to say yes to you and invite you into their life. And if that's you tonight, you know, I'd love to chat with you after. If you want to just ask Jesus into your heart, into your life, if you're ready to make that step, I'd love to chat with you and pray with you afterwards. And so God, I just pray now a blessing over all my brothers and sisters, everyone here tonight. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit just go with us all tonight and keep us safe, Lord, in your presence, Lord, throughout the week. And we just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.